0: A new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of
2: destiny. Yes!
0: Gatsby and the Mansions of the Gold Coast. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting Patreon.com/slash Bowery Boys.
2: Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young,
0: and this is Tom Myers. And for the first time since episode three eleven, in fact. Greg and I are recording in the same room. Mm-hmm. We are in the same. Greg, we, we are vaxxied.
2: Yes, vaxed and ready for action.
0: <laughs> We're vaxed.
2: <laughs> We're so excited to be back in some semblance of normalcy here mm-hmm. that we actually wanted to take a little road trip together. You know, we've been cooped up
0: for so long. <sighs> That's an understatement. Yes. And um, I'm sure that many of our listeners feel the same way. So, we wanted to take the show on a little mini vacation with a new three-part series, a road trip to three historical sites that are outside the city limits of New York. You know, sometimes it does seem a
2: little ridiculous that we draw a barrier around the types of stories that we cover on our show. Our slogan, after all, is New York City's history is American history. Mm -hmm. Well, for the next few weeks, it's also Long
0: Island history. Long Island, that outstretched arm of land that is the the southernmost area of New York State that juts right out into the Atlantic Ocean and is separated from Connecticut and Rhode Island by the Long Island Sound. Now, I live on Long Island Mm -hmm. because the boroughs of
2: Queens and Brooklyn comprise the westernmost portion of Long Island. But our stories over the next few weeks will be inspired by the rest of Long Island, or more specifically, sites from Long Island's other two counties, Nassau and Suffolk.
0: We love Long Island. And many of you live there now or grew up on Long Island. And I'm sure many of you regularly go to the Hamptons or Fire Island or Long Island wine country. (laughs) But the world is perhaps most familiar with Long Island,
2: Thanks to the 1925 classic novel, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, a tale of romantic yearning and social status during the Jazz Age, set specifically in the year 1922 in the grand and opulent manner of its mysterious protagonist, Jay Gatsby. A house so large and full of luxury that it doesn't seem like it could even be real, and yet Hundreds of these types of mansions dotted the landscape of Long Island in the early 20th century, and in particular, along the North Shore. It was known as the Gold Coast.
0: Vanderbilts, Morgans, Guggenheims, Fricks, DuPonts, Coes, they all made Long Island their home. At least their extravagant summer homes. So today, we'll be looking at this curious building boom. And also, we'll be looking at the romantic allure of this area that still exists, thanks in part to works like The Great Gatsby. And then whatever
2: became of these fairy tale-like castles? Well, believe it or not, many of them still remain. And in fact, later in the show, Tom and I will visit one spectacular Gold Coast mansion in particular, the old estate of W.R. Co., which is open to the public.
0: Greg and I went on an actual road trip out to Long Island, masked up and carrying microphones, wandering through a mysterious mansion. It was magical. And a home
2: with a few prohibition secrets very similar to the home of the enigmatic Mr. Gatsby. In fact, here, Tom, to set the scene, how about I read a little F. Scott Fitzgerald? There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach while his two motorboats slit the waters of the sound, drawing aquaplanes over cataracts of foam. On weekends, his Rolls Royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and from the city between nine in the morning and long past midnight, while his station wagon scampered like a brisk yellow bug to meet all trains. And on Mondays, eight servants, including an extra gardener, toiled all day with mops and scrubbing brushes and hammers and garden shears repairing the ravages of the night before. I believe. ...that on the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. People were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow they ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they were introduced by somebody who knew Gatsby, and after that, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with amusement parks... Sometimes they came and went without having met Gatsby at all, came for the party with a simplicity of heart that was its own ticket of admission. A chauffeur in a uniform of robin's egg blue crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. The honor would be entirely Gatsby's, it said, if I would attend his little party that night. He had seen me several times and had attended to call on me long before, but a peculiar combination of circumstances had prevented it. Signed Jay Gatsby in a majestic hand.
0: Could you um could you by way of situation here, could you use your majestic hand um <laughs> to sort of lay things out for us here? Sure. How long is Long Island? Oh well. It is a
2: 118-mile Long Island, but actually a relatively narrow body of land. In fact, no person in Long Island is more than 10 miles from a coastline. Isn't that interesting? But today, we'll be focusing on the North Shore and its jagged topography of bays, peninsulas, or necks and all the towns, villages, and hamlets which have developed here over the centuries.
0: Now, this is in contrast to the South Shore, which is dominated by beaches and barrier islands. And understanding the topography is pretty important to understanding the sort of appeal of the entire area. Mm-hmm. The North Shore is actually higher in elevation. Yes, a lot more hills there. And in terms of its settlement history, then, can I assume that the first settlers out here were, were also Dutch? Well, Tom, we are
2: breaking out of our regularly scheduled programming here because the English colonies had a much greater influence on the history of early Long Island. In fact, the very first settlement from the year 1640, which was an eastern Long Island settlement called Southhold, was a Puritan colony derived from another Puritan settlement across the Long Island Sound, a town called New Haven.
0: So even though Long Island here was claimed by the Dutch while the Dutch were in New Amsterdam, it was, I guess, too remote uh, from New Amsterdam for the authorities to prevent English settlements from sort of creeping over the Long Island sound. Yeah, like English settlements like uh, East
2: Hampton, South Hampton, and Setauket. But, you know, as the name Setauket indicates, there's a ghost of another history, which still lives on in Long Island today. And that is the legacy of the indigenous people of Long Island. And many of those tribe names live on the Merrick, the Massapequa, the Patchogue, the Montauk. They all live on in all of these place names. In fact, my favorite place name in Long Island, Tom, is also another Native American word, an Algonquin word, Ronkonkoma.
0: Driving along the expressway is just always, it's a thrill. It's so fun to see and say all of these names. But let's jump forward a bit in the story to the early 1800s when New York City and the city of Brooklyn were both developing quite a bit on their own. Mm -hmm. What was happening out here on Long Island?
2: Well, it was still very rural, even pastoral in certain areas of Long Island. You had both land farmers and oyster farmers. Whaling was a big industry out here, as was fishing. So quiet, more or less. But in 1832, a small railroad was developed between Brooklyn and today's Jamaica, Queens. And then two years later, it was extended through the length of Long Island to Greenport, which is on the far eastern edge. And that would link to a ferry service to Boston. And so
0: Long Island became a lot less quiet. And so then this new Long Island Railroad that ran the entire length of the island I'm assuming then that the railroad's stops along the way likely spurred development of those communities.
2: Just like the railroad would do out west in Mm
0: -hmm. later years. And over the
2: decades here, many smaller local railroads would be constructed uh, throughout Long Island, and all of that would eventually be consolidated into the Long Island Railroad. But that still left many of these communities along the North Shore still rather secluded. And as we progress here into the Gilded Age, you know, post-Civil War era, these secluded spots of natural beauty would become
0: attractive to New York City's wealthy classes. An elite class of New Yorkers who had been building fine estates and such along the banks of the East River or the Hudson, Mm -hmm. especially... But by the eighteen what eighties, most of the island had been mapped out and, and developed, or at least development had begun, making it too expensive to build a, a, a big estate really anywhere in New York City. Mm-hmm.
2: So many chose to build these fine new homes on the North Shore. Uh, in fact, probably the most famous house in Long Island, certainly one of the most famous, was built here on Cove Neck near Oyster Bay. In the year 1886, and that is the home of Theodore Roosevelt, named Sagamore Hill, built when he was actually very young, and this is many years before he became police commissioner and, of course, president. And, you know, knowing his passion for nature, you can really see, you know, why this was a great location. And in fact, tying into this early theme of, you know, Native American names, Sagamore is Algonquin for the word chieftain.
0: So then, was Roosevelt's Sagamore Hill considered to be one of the first Gold Coast mansions? Well, it should be included on the tour,
2: let's just say, but I don't choose to classify it as a Gold Coast mansion. It's it's a very approachable building compared to the homes of the rich that would arrive later. And by rich, I mean very, very rich, meaning that when they built a home here on the North Shore, we're not talking... Quaint cottages, but wildly large, ostentatious mansions, castles with dozens of rooms and huge staffs under employment, similar to the large estates of England or the chateaus of France.
0: It's almost like they were building royal residences, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which I suppose makes sense because in the Gilded Age, these in some ways were America's royalty. Yeah, or they carried themselves that way. And they Certainly, thought of them. Yeah.
2: So this is a trend that really appears starting in the 1890s. Although an important date for this story is actually the year 1898, when the city of Brooklyn and a portion of Queens County, the westernmost portions, become a part of greater New York City. The rest of Queens County, those communities that did not choose to join New York City, well, they split off and became Nassau County. And it's then that a huge surge of stately elegant homes began cropping up here on the North Shore.
0: It was a who's who. It was like the social register summer edition. (laughs) And it would only pick up in the 19-teens and then by, of course, the 1920s in the era of Gatsby. It was well underway. What allowed this involves a transferal of major estates,
2: major plots of lands from one hand to the other, and even an evolution of architectural design. For instance, the New York Post editor William Cullen Bryant of Bryant Park fame had a farm in the village of Roslyn, New York during the 19th century. And then in the year 1900, the editor Lloyd Stevens Bryce bought the property and then upgraded it by building a Neo-Georgian mansion. Then... Two decades later, the industrialist Henry Clay Frick then bought that house for his son Child's Frick (laughs) and then made it larger. So there's kind of an evolution of style. The houses get bigger and bigger, but the land is being passed from one hand to the other. And you're going to see this ballooning of property all across the North Shore in the early 20th century.
0: Estates that ballooned inside, sometimes to hundreds of acres, in some cases over a thousand acres, uh, which not only gave, of course, the families, you know, lovely gardens to stroll and wooded areas for hunting, but it also gave them long sought after privacy. And these estates would be walled off from the road and many were designed so that you couldn't even see a rooftop from the outside of the property. So I've
2: name dropped a little bit already in this episode, but let's go a little further. And by the 1910s, who were some of the major industrialists who were building estates out here?
0: Well, it really becomes like a greatest hits of, you know, U.S. industrialists and capitalists, the heads of oil companies and railroads and banks, captains of industry, Greg. And in almost all cases... These fine homes were their country homes. Okay, we need to underscore that. Most still kept a main residence in New York, be it a mansion or a townhouse. And even for some of these families, this North Shore country home wasn't even their only country home. Right. Some had, you know, half a dozen homes. How could you even keep them straight? (laughs) I'd be like so afraid to work for them. I'd be sending the silver to the wrong estate. You know, it would be a disaster. (laughs) The John Phippses, in fact, had eight different houses, including a 32-room mansion in Old Westbury out here on Long Island. And they certainly weren't alone. Some of the larger families, you know, had so many estates, it was hard to keep track of. For example, the the Vanderbilt clan, you know, who had estates all over the place, up in the Hudson Valley, out in Newport, and out here. There's so many different houses that they owned and, and lived in occasionally. <laughs> yeah, well, and there are so many different Vanderbilts. I mm-hmm. mean, my eyes were kind of crossing as I was trying to keep things straight here. Try to follow me for one second, though. And these are just some of the, the Vanderbilt, <laughs> but it makes the point. Frederick Vanderbilt, the, the grandson of Cornelius, okay, built a mansion that was designed by McKib Mead and White in Hyde Park up in the Hudson Valley, upstate in the 1890s. Meanwhile, his brother Cornelius Vanderbilt II built the Breakers, okay, out in Newport, also during the 1890s. And another brother, George Washington Vanderbilt II, built the 250-room Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina, also during the 1890s. It's, by the way, the largest private residence in the United States. And yet another brother, William Kissam Vanderbilt, built several, um, including the Marble House in Newport, and also out in Oakdale, Long Island. On the South Shore, he built a 110-room estate in 1901 called Idle Hour. But meanwhile... His son, okay, William Kissam II, when it was his turn and at the time of our story here, built another Vanderbilt Long Island estate called Eagle's Nest, which is in Centerport up here on the north coast, which would begin construction in 1910, and they would continue developing it as a family compound into the 1930s. And that's only a handful of uh, Vanderbilt manners
2: here. But just to, to, sh- to illustrate the fact that th- these very elite families were building massive European-style homes
0: across the United States. And William Kissam, Vanderbilt II, by the way, who built Eagle's Nest in Centerport, was also an early auto racer and an auto enthusiast. And he co-founded a company to construct the Long Island Motor Parkway, which opened in 1908. This was a toll road, okay, also referred to as the Vanderbilt Highway. And it would be used both for races occasionally, but also for drivers making the trip between Long Island and New York. This was a major innovation and a step forward for, you know, commuters. I mean, some people actually credit him with being the country's first automobile commuter. Uh, He could live in the countryside and still drive to work in the city. Well, that's certainly one way to make your
2: lavish lifestyle more accessible. Just simply build your own highway,
0: connecting (laughs) your big house with the city. That's right. And, And if you build it, they will come. And as we will see in the 19-teens and into the 20s, many more wealthy New Yorkers, also those who also had automobiles, would come. So who were some of the other families that were out here by the 1920s? Well, where do we even start? I mean, I I would like to turn to The Power Broker by Robert Caro who describes the scene along the Gold Coast in the 1920s because Robert Moses would actually cross paths with some of these estates during that decade. Caro describes the area with its sudden infusion of ultra-wealthy residents, some of whom were famous titans of business who were used to getting everything they wanted. He described them this way the northern tip of long island's glen cove peninsula was morgan's estate the waters beside it the anchorage for his great black yacht corsair and all the northern reaches of the peninsula were morgan country his son and four partners of the house of morgan lived there their yachts riding to anchor beside that of their father and chief and so did george f baker the chop-whiskered taciturn sphinx of wall street who was the president of the First National Bank and the largest single stockholder of both AT&T and U.S. Steel. To the south of the Morgans lay the domain of Standard Oil, where Charles Pratt and Stephen Harkness, partners of John D. Rockefeller I, had carved out adjoining fiefs on either side of a small stream. On his, Pratt built six manor houses for his six sons. South of the Pratt's, around Westbury, There established himself Henry Phipps, full partner of Andrew Carnegie. Around him, in the hills, Phipps gathered his children and grandchildren. To the west of the Phipps' land, also in Wheatley, lay Harbor Hill, the 480-acre holding of Clarence Hungerford McKay, president, board chairman, and major stockholder of the Postal Telegraph Cable Company, precursor of Western Union. To the west of McKay stretched the fiefs of other barons of American business, the sugar truster, Klaus Spreckels, for example, and other standard oil heirs like Payne Whitney, who in the early 1920s was paying an annual income tax of a million and a half dollars. And finally, in the eastern outpost of Centerport, the castle of fierce old Commodore Vanderbilt's indolent grandson, Willie. So then
2: here by the 1920s, you've got the Vanderbilts, the Whitneys, the Fricks, Morgans, the essentially the, the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks
0: of yore. <laughs> yes, and, and also hundreds of others who are less famous to us today, but who still built elaborate residences. Caro states that there were 600 estates on the North Shore. But we've seen in our research many different estimates Some over a thousand. You know, it probably depends on where you draw the lines, sort of geographically and in terms of timelines. Number of rooms. Number of rooms. Anchorage. What makes the list? (laughs) The list that I just read from the power broker is really just skimming the surface. In fact, it skips over F.W. Woolworth's elaborate estate. And of course, Frank Woolworth could afford
2: a sumptuous estate out here on the North Shore because his own temple of commerce, the Woolworth Building, opened in Lower Manhattan in
0: 1913. So, you know, pretty much in the middle of our story here. Right, 1913, and then his Long Island estate in Glencove, Winfield Hall, would be built three years later in 1916. It was a huge 62-room Italian Renaissance-style mansion. He spent $9 million on it. It had marble walls throughout, solid gold doorknobs, Greg, gold <laughs> actual gold fixtures in the bathrooms. He spent two million just on the on the marble staircase. I mean, he did not nickel and dime on the construction of this thing. <laughs> Clearly, however, the financier Otto Kahn would one up Woolworth because he wanted to build his mansion on the highest hill around. But nothing, you know, no high hill was available, so he built his own hill, and atop that hill. On his 443-acre estate, he constructed a whopping 127-room mansion called Ohika Castle. It literally looks like an 18th-century French chateau plopped right down outside of Cold Spring Harbor.
2: 127 rooms? I could not come up with 127 reasons to use <laughs> that number of rooms.
0: But yes, 127 rooms. It was, in fact, the second largest private residence in the U.S., after the previously mentioned Biltmore. According to the Ahuika Castle's website, because today it has a website, Khan used the 109,000-square-foot, 127-room estate as a summer home where he hosted lavish parties and regularly entertained royalty, heads of state, and Hollywood stars. This whole scene, collectively,
2: was captured within a novel published on April 10th, 1925, and a book that was almost titled Among Ash Heaps and Millionaires. Another discarded title was The High Bouncing Lover and oh. then Almost Under the Red, White and Blue. But finally, the book's author F. Scott Fitzgerald settled on the title The Great Gatsby.
0: The Great Gatsby, the great novel of the Jazz Age. Yes,
2: by the ultimate Jazz Age author. Fitzgerald was born almost 125 years ago in September of 1896 in St. Paul, Minnesota, but really became the toast of New York with his very charismatic wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, um, whom he married at St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1920, just a week after the publication of his very
0: first novel and a smash hit, This Side of Paradise. They must have just been the toast of the town, Mm -hmm. the two of them. Zelda was herself kind of a model figure in the jazz age party scene. The image of the iconic flapper.
2: After all, liquor was outlawed across the country in 1920, just months before the release of this book. So they they were party kids, and that was part of their reputation. As Dorothy Parker once said, quote, they did both look as though they had just stepped out of the sun. Their youth was striking. Everyone wanted to meet him. Unquote. Well, in 1922, Fitzgerald moved to a home in Great Neck, Long Island, here on the North Shore, which allowed him to, of course, speed into the city for some late night dining or to pursue his short lived Broadway writing career. But it wouldn't be until they moved to France that Fitzgerald would complete work on his magnum opus here, The Great Gatsby. Uh, And they would continue living in Europe well after the book's publication here in the United States in 1925.
0: And Greg, for the benefit of those who don't remember their ninth grade English uh, (laughs) lesson on this, could you please just give us a quick recap
2: of the story of The Great Gatsby? The novel is about the deceptions and yearning heartache of one Jay Gatsby who lives in a sumptuous Gold Coast mansion in the village of West Egg which is a fictional place based on the Kings Point end of the Great Neck Peninsula now his story is told by Nick Carraway who works in the bond business in Manhattan and lives in a bungalow next door to Gatsby Nick is cousins with Daisy Buchanan who just happens to be the lost love Of Gatsby and she is now married to the rich bullish Tom Buchanan and the Buchanan's then live on East Egg which is based on the peninsula traditionally called cow neck so named for its pastoral opportunities during the colonial era so these are based on real places and Gatsby then who's on West Egg can see the Buchanan's home on East Egg And in particular, the green light that sits on the Buchanan's dock in
0: Manhasset Bay. And ultimately, well, I don't want to give it away if you want to read it again, and I suggest you do. It's a tale of heartache and and disillusionment. But Fitzgerald set the book in real Long Island places. He he might have changed the names, but the setting is true. Right. Interestingly,
2: though, the New York City locations, because they go a lot of times to New York, those locations throughout the book are all actually real and are referred to by their actual names, like the Queensboro Bridge, mm-hmm. uh, the Plaza Hotel, and even the symbol-laden ash dumps are a real place.
0: Yeah, he's referring to the Corona ash dumps, which we discussed uh, just two years ago in our 2019 show on the World's Fair of 1939. But Fitzgerald was living for some time then, in Great Neck, Long Island. So this served as inspiration for his setting.
2: Right. He he took many of his details from his time there, and including the social fabric of the place, which is lifted from real life and then placed in the book here, Great Neck, or West Egg, where Gatsby and Fitzgerald lived, was slightly
0: less wealthy than East Egg, where the Buchanans lived. But what about Gatsby's mansion, the totally over-the-top opulent estate uh, that he lorded over? Was, was that based on a real estate? Well, there are a lot of theories. And I think that we have to
2: look at the world of Gatsby's Long Island as a dream with New York City is kind of a harsh reality and the ash dumps a transition between those two settings. You know, so as such, there's not one house in particular that seems to be a basis for either Gatsby's mansion or the Buchanan's mansion. There's the house known as Land's End, which was demolished in 2011, which is sometimes seen as an inspiration. I've also seen reference to Ohika Castle and also to Frank Woolworth's mansion, Winfield Hall as an inspiration and even Beacon Towers, which was built for Alva Belmont and was later the home of William Randolph Hearst, Mm -hmm. But I think all of these houses ultimately inspired him, and of their remaining homes today, I certainly think that those places want visitors to feel as if Gatsby and that Roaring Twenties
0: spirit uh, still thrives and exists there when they visit. But of course the 1920s wouldn't roar on forever. We'll get to the rest of the story of Long Island's Gold Coast and go on a road trip and take you inside a remaining Gold Coast mansion
1: See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
2: On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still But of course, the roaring good times of the 1920s would come crashing down, much like the story of Gatsby himself. So how did the depression affect these different estates along the Gold Coast here?
0: Well, I think that broadly speaking, you know, the depression had a mixed effect. It hit some of the property owners in a big way and forced them to sell, but not everybody was affected. Remember that certain industries were hit much harder than others, And the heads of oil companies, for example, and railroads weren't, you know, waiting in soup lines. However, staffing would certainly become much more expensive. And here we find similar circumstances to those that we discussed in our December 2017 show on the fall of Fifth Avenue mansions. It simply became more expensive to run these massive estates, especially as staffing costs increased. So through the 30s and
2: 40s, and I guess even through today, that some of these homes could be maintained, you know, Mm -hmm. by wealthy families.
0: Then there's also, you know, that pesky way that inheritances work. Just say that you have, you know, an extremely wealthy businessman or businesswoman. They build a massive estate and they run it for years, okay? When they die, their fortune usually passes to their spouse and eventually their children, who usually divide it up. But then what happens to that massive estate? Do the kids keep running it? That's going to cost a fortune to run, and that fortune is now divided up. So with each passing generation then, running these estates would become increasingly difficult to afford.
2: Not to mention that, you know, taste change. Yeah. Um, Why would I want to entertain a large group of people in a French style chateau when I could just jet off to France and just do it in a more authentic place. But some families did manage to hold on and keep running these big houses.
0: Yes, in fact. And um you know that's the case of many of them that still stand today. It's the case with Winfield Hall, the Woolworth mansion that we mentioned in Glen Cove. It's actually on the market right now. Earlier today I was checking out Zillow um, it's oh no! It is being listed for a little north of nineteen million dollars, Greg. And they gave me the sort of like zestimate and you know estimated monthly mortgage payments are just one hundred and twelve thousand dollars.
2: Oh well, let's join the lifestyles of the rich and famous, shall we?
0: <laughs> I'm sure Robin Leach featured that show. Oh yes, featured mm-hmm.
2: that estate on uh, his show. many of these houses probably.
0: And of course, many smaller estates would be sold, you know, more quietly and are still run by private families and occupied today. But something else was also happening in the mid 20th century that presented another opportunity for families who owned one of these giant estates, and that is suburban sprawl. Especially by the 1950s, Long Island had become much more efficiently linked to New York with modern roadways. First the Southern Parkway, and then the Northern Parkway, and then the Long Island Expressway. And Long Island became a convenient alternative for New Yorkers who were ready to move to the suburbs. Imagine the scenario in which siblings are holding the keys right to their parents' massive estate out here. They're taking one look at their heating bills and their gardener's and if they couldn't swing it or find another rich buyer for the estate, many opted to demolish the old homes and subdivide the land into suburban developments. Which is the case for some of the estates that you mentioned earlier in the show. Yes, it was a very common solution. Um, I mentioned in that passage from the power broker, Clarence Hungerford McKay, uh, who built Harbor Hill in Roslyn, New York. It was designed by McKin, Mead and White, finished in 1902. Uh, he feted you know, the Duke of Windsor and Charles Lindbergh there. Another candidate
2: for the possible inspiration of the Great Gatsby, FYI. Yep.
0: And it was demolished in 1947. And today it's covered by homes. Um, although three of the estate's smaller buildings were listed with the National Register of Historic Places in the 90s and saved. Some did
2: avoid the wrecking ball.
0: Yes, and in many cases, through conversion to other uses. In several instances, art museums, historic home museums, parks, and so forth. We talked about the Frick Estate up in Roslyn, which was purchased in 1913 by Henry Frick for his son, Childs. Uh, They lived... Childs and his wife Frances lived at that estate for more than 50 years until he died in 1965 and then four years later that estate was sold to Nassau County and today it's the Nassau County Museum of Art. What a gorgeous setting for an art museum. And the Frick Estate wasn't alone here. Remember William Vanderbilt II's estate, Eagle's Nest in Centerport? Mm Hmm. Vanderbilt died in 1944 and stipulated in his will that his estate be given to Suffolk County for use as a museum and That would, you know, house his collection of natural history and maritime and ethnographic artifacts. That museum would open in 1950 and a planetarium would be added in 1970. Wow.
2: And open for visitors to this day.
0: Well, in the Phipps estate, their Long Island estate, remember the Phipps has had eight. Their (laughs) Long Island one, Old Westbury Gardens. Well, John Schaefer Phipps died in 1958, and the next year it was turned into a museum home that is absolutely worth a visit today to see how these homes were run and decorated. And whatever happened to Otto Kahn's a big house
2: here, the one that he his built? His castle. His castle, which he made on his own
0: hill. Well, Ohika had a rather tumultuous ride. Kahn died in 1934. And five years later, his family sold the estate to the welfare fund of the sanitation workers. And it became actually a retirement home for New York City sanitation workers. They, they even renamed the place Sanita. What? That well, was, that's quite a twist. <laughs> very clean. They kept it very clean. <laughs> yes. After World War II, Sanita was sold to the Eastern Military Academy, who ran it as a military school for 30 years. They didn't have much interest, you know, in preserving its fine historical details. However, but there are some nice, you know, fine photos of cadets standing at attention on the grand staircase. The school, unfortunately, went bankrupt in the late 70s, and the mansion stood abandoned and was often vandalized, which is the fate of many of these mansions until it was purchased in 1984 by a Long Island developer named Gary Melius, who spent years restoring the property along with a a nonprofit group called the Friends of Ohica, a group that was formed to preserve and protect the property. So today, Ohica Castle operates as a luxury hotel and also as a restaurant an event space and a wedding venue.
2: But one mansion we haven't talked about yet on this show is one that was built by an insurance executive named William Robertson Co. Today, that
0: sumptuous estate is known as Planting Fields. And it was on an overcast Thursday morning, in perfect conditions, in fact, for visiting Gold Coast mansions, that Greg and I headed to Planting Fields near the village of Oyster Bay. It was a beautiful drive winding about this massive estate. Greg, here we are at Co Hall.
2: Yes, it is a beautiful estate, rolling hills, uh, green grass, yellow dandelions with a perimeter of beautiful trees and shrubs and flowering plants.
0: And behind us is, is a stone and also Tudor, 100-year-old mansion called Co Hall. We're going to walk up to the front doors. Looks like we're entering a castle. It's almost like a fantasy. It is almost like a little bit like a Downton
2: Abbey experience.
0: It is. Let's walk up to the front door. Can you knock on these heavy castle doors? Anybody home? Whoa. (laughs) Hello. Hello. Inside, we were greeted by the director of museum affairs and chief curator at Planning Fields, Meredith Brown and archivist Caitlin Colbin Waldron.
2: Could you give us a, just a general overview of the architectural style of this mansion?
1: Sure. Co Hall is part of the Tudor Revival style, which was quite popular among folks like the Coes mm-hmm. um, in the early 20th century. It's kind of a hearkening back to aristocracy and landed gentry in Europe
0: it really, it makes you feel like we're, we've walked into a castle. I mean, we, we come into this entryway and there's a, a giant chandelier over us and stained glass windows and daunting portraits of uh, medieval faces looking at us. Was this style typical
2: of other Gold Coast mansions or is this kind of specific to his personality and tastes?
1: Uh, there were other Tudor Revival, but Georgian Revival tended to be more popular around here. If you go to Old Westbury Gardens, that's a Georgian Revival house. So this is a l- little bit unusual, although a lot of Tudor Revival homes, smaller homes, were built in the 1920s. Um, this is a little bit early. Maybe, a, maybe they were trendsetters, the Coes. But yeah, so you walk into this entry space that's sort of made to feel like it's developed over time, Mm -hmm. um, as if perhaps once this was a forecourt that then was closed in.
0: As if we had just crossed over a moat to get here in the first place.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: Later, during a stroll through the gardens,
2: Meredith told us a little bit more about W.R. Coe and his wife, May Rogers Coe.
1: W.R. Coe was an English immigrant who came over to the U.S. with his family um, as a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. And he started working at a low level at a marine insurance company and worked his way up to become the chairman. And he married May Coe, who was the youngest and favorite daughter of Henry Huddleston Rogers, who was the, one of the partners of Standard Oil. Ah. So not the Rockefellers, but cool. the other ones. One? <laughs> so he did quite well for himself, Mr. Rogers, which meant that his four daughters did pretty well for themselves, also. Yes. Yeah, so W. R. Coe's uh, fortune expanded with his marriage.
2: And when did the Coes move here to the North Shore of Long Island, and you know to this estate in particular?
1: They were looking for a country a country house on the North Shore, as were most of their social peers in the early 20th century. So they st- started renting this property in 1908. They purchased it in 1911 and then built the house as it stands today uh, between 1918 and 1921. And the gardens, they hired the Olmsted Brothers firm to do the major landscaping of the gardens. So all 409 acres were designed by the Olmstead Brothers um, up until about 1929, I think our, the last plan is around 1930. W.R. Co. really loved this place in that he felt very connected to the grounds. I was reading correspondence between him and his son saying it was raining at planting fields, but he had never seen the grounds look so beautiful. I imagine it much like a day like today. Mm-hmm. Kind of gray, overcast, but everything blooming. Yeah. So when they
0: first moved out here, when the Coes first started renting the estate, even when they bought it, it was not this house that they were renting.
1: Correct. The house that was on the property initially was a, also in a kind of Tudor style, but it was made out of brick. Um, so it looked very different from the house that stands here today. And it burned down in a, some form of accident in March of 1918. And then they just started building their new place right away.
0: And how long did it take to, uh, to build this massive home? And, and how much did it cost? Do we know?
1: Uh, it took about three years from start to finish, and the receipt that I have found in the archives that has the estimated cost in 1919 as $844,000. In 1919 dollars. In 1919 dollars.
0: Just to be doubly sure of the cost, they took us back inside and showed us the actual receipts, the literal receipts from the year 1919.
1: Estimated cost. Eight
0: hundred fifty-five
1: thousand four eighty-one. Mm-hmm. Seventy-five cents.
0: There you go. This stupid column <laughs> of Changes Made by Mr. Coe. Yes, he's which, very uh, involved. <laughs> which added up to $100,000. $100,000 worth there. of changes.
2: <laughs> it's so, it's, oh my gosh, look at that safe. Meredith and Caitlin led us on a very memorable tour of the house, including Coe's fine study with its dark wood walls and well-appointed furniture.
0: By the way, it looks like, I mean, this could have also been the setting of the movie Clue.
1: Yes, I know. Wouldn't it be great? It's the best place for a murder mystery party, I'm sure.
0: Oh, wow. We're walking in. Okay, so it's uh, wood-planked floors, uh, chestnut walls, I'm assuming, Uh, heavy furniture, overstuffed chairs, uh, dim lighting, chandelier, fireplace, of course, behind us, beautiful windows out to the fields around us and the gardens.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the house was designed quite deliberately to incorporate the landscape and the architecture. So the Olmsted Brothers firm, which ended up designing the bulk of the landscape here, and Walker and Gillette worked together so that you can access, there's a beautiful vista out of every room, and from all the rooms on the ground floor, there's direct access outside. So if it looks like a window, it's probably a door and you can actually get outside, which is which is great. And it was designed to have that kind of free-flowing inside-outside, a seamless experience of the entire property. This looks like a
2: fairly standard room for a sumptuous house of this nature. Are there any uh, secrets you can share about this room?
1: Of course. So this room initially had different walls and... It initially looked more like a 19th-century English gentleman's room. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this was one of those amendments that W.R. Co. made. He wanted it to look older than that, so they put in new paneling, which included some special secret things. Um, it
0: is Clue, the movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. Hidden behind this. But
2: a surprise awaited no, us over... behind a secret panel, a doorway
0: to a secret door. room. Gosh.
1: Is a bar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Is Look at like this. Speaking? You even have champagne back here. Wow, this is excellent. So there is a little side room here. Uh, Greg, There's this is really a moment in time. Vaccinated yet with a mask uh-huh. in a bar in a <laughs> hidden chamber.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, presumably this was used very actively in the 1920s during Prohibition. And then just became another com- a quirky component of the house after that.
1: Indeed. So the house was was designed and built between nineteen eighteen and nineteen twenty one, so they knew it was coming. it was coming, it was coming. So this was a feature that was added to the house because of course there would have been lavish parties and lots of entertaining and plenty of champagne. WR Co's purported favorite cocktail was the Manhattan. So, you know, you'll have to get your man after my Yes. You have to get <laughs> your <laughs> bourbon from somewhere. Um.
0: Next, we entered the dining room, full of light, with windows facing into the garden, and a room filled with the ghosts of grand dinner parties past.
1: Yeah, so this, this is a very large dining table that was designed by Walker and Gillette um, to look like a medieval refectory table. There are some other, three other refectory tables that actually are medieval, so those are antiques that would have come over from, probably from England, um, and, yes, the Coe's w- used this space to entertain, uh, which they did quite a lot in the initial years here. Um, a little bit later in the 1930s and 40s, they decided that perhaps Coe Hall was a little bit big, and they, weren't, they, were, they were getting up in age and not entertaining quite in the way that they used to, so that this room, they actually transformed into their living room. Oh. So the table was pushed to the side, the chairs went into storage. Did
0: and they have a TV in here?
1: Probably a phonograph. Maybe a radio. <laughs> I haven't seen any pictures of TVs, but, you know, they yeah. may have hidden the TV. Yeah.
0: Behind some panel. Behind some <laughs>
1: secret panel that we haven't found yet.
2: And these doors are especially unique. They have card figures into them and, and lots of unusual symbols down near the bottom.
1: Yeah, so these... Very ornately carved wooden doors. Um, So this door here that we're looking at on the left has a reliefs carving of a man at arms. So there he is in his medieval getup, Elizabethan getup, dressed kind of like William Shakespeare or something. And then on the other door is the housewife. Mm. Wife spelled ye old English way with a Y. Mm. And there she is. But the key thing about this, and I use the word key deliberately, is that she is holding the key to the house which ah,
0: is like is like the title to the house to, the, to this very co house
1: indeed and um while wr co was a very successful businessman his perhaps best financial decision was marrying may Coe. so she came with a big purse shall we say and she signed the deed for planting fields so here we have the lady of the house holding the keys which i love i love that
0: our
2: guides led us upstairs via an almost medieval staircase rich with ornamentation. Tapestries hanging on the
1: wall.
0: I'm passing some carved wooden figures, some carved wooden statues at the top. Oh,
2: Stoic women in oval
0: paintings. <laughs> Serious brows.
1: Little, our little dragon head. Oh, at the top, at of, the the top
0: of the rail. Oh, is that a guest room?
1: That's a guest room. That's the bishop's room.
0: Not shabby. And
1: the bishop's room. Is that yes, what you Yes,
0: yes. Peering
2: into a series of guest rooms, we couldn't help but stop at a rather curious spot the bathroom of Mr. William Coe. Is this a,
0: ga- a guest
1: bathroom? This Not- is Mr. Coe's bathroom.
0: Whoa.
2: I
1: mean, this is...
0: You could fit a whole studio apartment in here.
1: <laughs> this is definitely bigger than well, yeah, my apartment stuff. on the Lower East Side. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's
0: no longer dark and moody and Tudor in here. It's bright white light gleaming.
1: Yes. The
0: bathroom was directly connected to Mr. Ko's bedroom, but it was the highly ornamented and finely feathered bedroom of his wife that took our breath away. Whoa! Whoa! So this is Mrs. Coe's room. We've just stepped into the other corner. And the walls and ceiling are just covered in these Chandler murals. It's fabulous. It's a sort of Garden of Eden scene.
2: The Coe's were especially fond of the muralist, Robert Winthrop Chandler, a New York artist who was a member of the Astor family. In addition to these striking bird paintings, Chandler also transformed another room of the house with astonishing images of buffalo, His work here transforms May's bedroom into a virtual aviary.
1: W.R. and May Co. were very interested in birds. May used to keep parakeets and parrots and cockatiels in her bathroom, which is through that door. W.R. Co. was very interested in ornithology. He um, endowed the ornithologist position at Yale, which still exists. So there are depictions of birds all over the house including here in the lace mural. So it's this kind of tropical, semi-Chinese-style landscape painting. Right. And then on top of that are these large, lacy designs. Um, Almost this, like
0: you're looking at it through a screen of some sort.
1: What we're looking at here is a reproduction of the original, finished in 2010 um, by the scenic artist Wood Holland. So this was May's room, and after her death... W.R. Co. remarried, and the next Mrs. Co. was not as fond of these particular murals. Mm-hmm. So she covered over them. They were done on canvas. She either took them down or covered over them primarily. Um, and then eventually the original murals were lost or destroyed. Um, but we had them replicated. They're great archival photographs, color photographs, so we were able to yeah, to me. reproduce them.
2: After our interior tour, we headed back outside and marveled at the endless gardens in full bloom as we stood next to a stately stone fountain. So on the show today, we have talked about the rise of these hundreds of mansions on the North Shore and, of course, are ending the story with so many of them being torn down for all sorts of different reasons. And so, you know, not that many survive today, but not only does Co Hall and planting fields survive, but it's this thriving, gorgeous arboretum of a, a place for public enjoyment. How did this place survive?
1: W.R. Co was very committed to education. And so in his will, he technically sold for a dollar, but really gave the property in its entirety to New York State to be used for educational purposes. So it started out um, after his death in 1955 as a university campus, he also was incredibly devoted to horticulture, particularly that we have this beautiful camellia greenhouse, which housed his collection of camellias. Prize-winning. Prize-winning collection, Prize winning collection <laughs> of camellias. There are a lot of little coins and trophies Medallia. and medallions and things in the, oh. in the archives. Mm-hmm. And so he was very interested in having this space used as a school for horticulture. Um, so Farmingdale had some classes here. Um, So a couple decades later, the university system moved out. They needed more space, different kinds of space. And so this became part of the New York State Park system um, and turned into the Planting Fields Arboretum, which is how it has remained. So it's now a public-private partnership with Planting Fields Foundation. And we work together with New York State Parks to maintain this amazing property.
2: Um, when people come out here, this is not just a historic home that's sumptuous and beautiful and historic, and it's not even just gardens and a greenhouse. But there's even a wild more place right where there are wilderness trails.
1: Yes, there are five miles of hiking trails um, that were the original bridle paths. So imagine yourself on a horse <laughs> while you're while you're hiking through them. Um, yeah, so it's four hundred nine acres, which is half the size of Central Park. Um, so it's it's a good chunk of land and there are rolling hills and a cherry grove, a rose arbor, a collection of maple trees, uh, two greed houses, a working farm. And if you walk all the way down, you'll see the Karshalton Gates, which were plucked straight from England and deposited here. They're enormous and beautiful.
0: Well, Meredith and Caitlin, thank you so much for taking us around on this wonderful tour of Hall and of the planting fields.
1: Thank you so much for coming we are open every day the park is open every day of the year come visit
2: gatsby's house was still empty when i left the grass on his lawn had grown as long as mine i spent my saturday nights in new york because those gleaming dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and the laughter, faint and incessant, from his garden, and the cars going up and down his drive. One night I did hear a material car there, and saw its lights stop at the front steps. But I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who had been away at the ends of the earth, and didn't know that the party was over." Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferryboat across the sound. And as the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away until gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for Dutch sailors' eyes, a fresh green breast of the new world, its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory, enchanted moment, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent, compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he neither understood nor desired. Face to face, for the last time in history, with something commensurate in his capacity for wonder." And as I sat there, brooding on the old, unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He had come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, Where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, The orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther. And one fine morning, so we beat on, Boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past.
0: For more on the great mansions of Long Island's Gold Coast, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And we'll have many photos from our trip to
2: planting fields. You can also check us out on social media at Facebook, Twitter,
0: and on Instagram. A huge thank you to our supporters, our patrons, who have joined us on Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys. Needless to say, the past 14 months have been rough for everybody, including uh, in many ways for the small podcasts that are out there operating independently like us. And we wouldn't still be here today without the continued support of our patrons. Thank you so much. You can join the party at patreon.com slash Bowery When you head over there, you'll find out about the extra audio features that we regularly produce just for our VIP listenership of patrons. And uh, this week, our patrons will receive
2: an extended version of that walking tour through Planting Fields because there were a lot of different places that we went to in that house that we didn't get to share with you on the show. So join us over there
0: on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And a huge thank you, by the way, to Meredith and Caitlin and the team over at Planting Fields for hosting us last week. And accommodating us during, of course, a very interesting
2: time for historic houses that are giving tours in an end of pandemic environment. Yes. So, listener, what will be part two of our road trip to Long Island? Where are we going to next? (laughs) you'll find out in 2 weeks. So, thank you very much for listening and have a great Long Island week, whether you live here or not.
0: Bye-bye. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes.